Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I wanted to give a very big welcome to uh, this evening portion of our ROOP conference. Uh, it is wonderful to see each of you here tonight. And I'm just delighted to uh, welcome our most honored guest, uh, Mr. Arthur Roop. I don't know if Arthur is here yet. Uh, I heard that he might be here tonight. Oh, he was here. Oh, I missed him. But uh, I want to thank him uh, so much. Uh, I would like to give very special welcome to our keynote speaker, Jeff Greenfield. It's so nice to see you here again. And we are so pleased that the we could see you uh, just last time we saw you was two years ago to give a series of lectures. And I even had a wonderful lunch with you uh, along with our, uh, one of our Nobel laureates wanted to see you. So we, we, we had a good conversation. I still remember that. Thank you very much. And I, let me also say thank you to all of our today's presenters and to our sponsors. Uh, our Roop Conference is sponsored by the Arthur N. Roop Professorship in the Social Effects of Mass Communication, uh, sponsored by the Department of Communication and the Carsey Wolf Center for Film, Television, and the New Media. Uh, by the way, we have a wonderful new building for the Carsey Wolf Center for Film and Television, New Media, along with uh, a uh, Pollock Theater, uh, which, is, which are 85% completed. If you go to Rock Gym there, they're, they're, you're going to see this wonderful building, uh, which is going to have the grand opening in the summer, probably. I would also like to recognize and thank my colleagues for their roles in today's conference. Uh, our Arthur Roop Chair in the Social Effects and Mass Communication and a co-director of our Carsey Wolf Center for Film, Television, and New Media, Ron Rice. Uh, had I known that you would... Yeah, let's, I wanted to introduce our uh, professor of film and media studies, Anna Everett. Anna, yeah. <laughs> I want to introduce, introduce our professor of film and media and the director of our Carsey Wolf Center, Constance Penley. Constance. I would also like to thank our conference committee, uh, the three professors of communication. Uh, I think you better stand up so people can see you. Michael Stahl, also our chair of the communication department. And, uh, Linda Putnam. Yeah. Linda, we're still very glad that you could join us. And Dan Linz, Dan. <laughs> and, and our Carsey Wolf Center for Film, Television, and New Media. Uh, brings together over 50 faculty colleagues from over 20 departments. The research of, of our distinguished faculty includes such diverse topics as the history of intellectual property, free speech and media outlets, credibility of media sources, state and corporate ownership of satellite technologies, and new media and political communication. Uh, as you all know, Santa Barbara is home to many people and groups interested in media. So now I would like to close by saying that we are especially grateful to Arthur Roop for endowing this Roop professorship in social effects of mass media. 
the Roop Foundation is truly a wonderful, wonderful campus partner and a supporter and also an asset to our society. So we are very pleased that we have all, all of you to join us tonight for this very special lecture for Jeff Greenfield. Thank you. What I'd like to do is interview the people, um, introduce the people who will uh, appear after uh, Jeff Greenfield, so that I don't have to um, disrupt that flow. Our um, moderator is Anna Everett, who was introduced nicely by Chancellor Yang. She's a professor and a former chair of the Department of Film and Media Studies. She was also the former director, well, she is now currently the former director. She was the director of UC Santa Barbara Center for Black Studies. She's published a, a, a lot of very interesting books. Um, one called Returning the Gaze, A Genealogy of Black Film Criticism, 1909 to 1949. New Media, Theories and Practices of Digital Textuality. Afro-Geeks, Beyond the Digital Divide. Uh, the Afro-Geeks Conference occurs here from time to time, and she has uh, led that. Learning Race and Ethnicity, Use in Digital Media. There's a brand new book out that she hasn't actually yet physically received, but should appear in her desk any day now, called uh, Digital Diaspora, A Race for Cyberspace. She founded and edits the journal Screening Noir, a journal of film, television, and digital culture. And as I said, she's, Af she's organized the 2004 and 2005 Afro Geeks uh, conferences. And uh, she will uh, moderate the discussion afterwards. <laughs> it's the rapture. Um, I'd like to briefly just uh, mention, I won't give the full description, but of the four presenters, the four main presenters, they're going to come up after Mr. Greenfield's presentation and um, be available to provide questions to Mr. Greenfield. And he was very, very interested in their presentations, and I think there's a lot of continuity between some of the topics he's going to raise, some of the topics they've raised, and the communication between them. So Dana Mastro is at, um, she's an associate professor and the director of graduate studies in the Department of Communication at the University of Arizona. She made a very nice presentation on ethnicity and um, the, how it was, what the polls said about the role in the election. Kristen McCauley is uh, in the Department of Black Studies and his area of research in Northern and Southern African politics, world systems theory, black intellectual history, and uh, other areas. And he talked about um, some of the interesting issues that, uh, I won't use the verb he used, um, bothered him from the campaign. Uh, Lance Bennett, who is the uh, professor of political science and Riddick Lawrence professor of communication at the University of Washington, he made a very nice presentation on arguing for the benefit of humor and political communication, and he's done a lot of work in online uh, communities and in the, the relationship between online and offline activity that leads to civic engagement. Roderick Hart uh, presented a very nice, um, as to say, the paradoxical humorous discussion on why humor is not so useful for political communication. And he's the Shivers Chair in Communication and Professor of Government and also the Director of the Net Strauss Institute for Civic Participation at the University of Texas at Austin. So we have quite an august audience here, even though it's only March. So let me introduce our guest speaker. We're very, very pleased to have him. He's been here over the years at UCSB, lives part-time in UCSB, you know, in Santa Barbara. We'd love to have him actually living here. Um, he uh, has a law degree from Yale, an honorary degree in laws at Union College. He's the, currently the, the senior political correspondent for CBS. He was formerly CNN's senior political analyst, and he's contributed to the Situation Room, American Morning, and 
Paulazan now. He has a tremendous background that's actually separate from his uh, media professionalism. He was uh, a legislative fellow for the office of Senator Robert Kennedy. He was assistant to New York City Major John Lindsay. These are very, very influential people. He's been a political consultant. He's been a lecturer at law schools. He's been a political media analyst for ABC, for CNN. Um, he's a syndicated columnist for Universal Press. He's won four Emmys. He's won the Quill Award for Meritorious Journalism. He was an industry fellow here for us for two years. And he has a wide variety of books, ranging from The Advance Man in 1971 up through The People's Choice in 1995 and Oh Waiter, One Order of Crow, 2001. I'm sure he was not eating crow for his own mispredictions, but probably for others. He's also been writing magazine and newspaper articles for over 40 years for all the top magazines, Harper's, Esquire, New York Times Magazine, New York Times Book Review, my personal favorite, Chicago Tribune, National Lampoon, which gives you a little clue into his wide-ranging appreciation of language and the world around us. And his presentation, as you can see, is analysis of media coverage. Did it make any difference? Jeff Greenfield. Hi, don't panic, big type, wide margins. <laughs> it is really a pleasure to be back here. Um, I taught here two years ago. Um, my wife went here a few years before that. The only thing I cannot figure out every time I come here is how in God's name does anybody get any work done? You know, when I went to school at the University of Wisconsin, nobody had to persuade us to go inside this time of year. So I'm, I'm going to keep coming back till I figure that out. Um, and congratulations to the School of Communication on its 25th anniversary. Uh, I should have brought something silver, but I, I forgot. Um, thanks also to Michael and to Anna, two people who, without whom I would have, my courses two years ago would have collapsed in complete organizational chaos um, because that's a weakness of mine. Um, so that said, I hope you, uh, those of you here, fully appreciate the incredibly courageous act I'm about to perform. Because when you talk about the media's role in politics, you are entering a minefield where a whole lot of onlookers have a rooting interest in watching you blow, blow yourself up. And this is especially true if, like me, you believe that some of the core beliefs of those most interested in this subject are either wrong or exaggerated or so filtered through a prism of ideological beliefs or biases that a dispassionate conversation about this subject is almost impossible. And it is especially, especially true if, like me, you believe that more often than not in campaigns, the whole idea of the media exercising a profound, not to say deliberate, impact on the shape of a political race is one of those exaggerated notions. And to tip my hand at the beginning, I, do, I will argue tonight that in 2008, which is the pattern in most of our recent presidential campaigns, the media's impact was dwarfed by far more significant forces, uh, and not just the first stage of the economic calamity that dominated the last six weeks of the campaign. Nonetheless, with the cautionary reminder from John Kennedy that civility is not a sign of weakness, and with an acknowledgement that I might be wrong about some of this, I want to look back on 2008, point to moments where I think the media's impact was in fact, or were in fact, let's be grammatically correct here, significant, Look at where the endlessly discussed new media did have a really significant impact, but it is not necessarily where you think it did. 
raise the subject of media bias, which has been the subject of, an, of a C-SPAN panel that has been in continuous session for the last 28 years. And when I suggest that the, media, the media's influence are overblown, I will do it as much as I can by pointing to what actually happened in the primaries and general election. I told my class I taught here two years ago, I do not come armed with theories, constructs, or narratives. I will tell you what I think happened, and then these nice people or you can tell me where and why I'm wrong, or celebrate the wisdom you have just heard. <laughs> Your choice. Now look, it is certainly true that the media, old and new, were the focus of almost as much attention in this campaign as the candidates themselves that charges of bias coming from the left almost as much as the right this time were heard from the opening days of the campaign to the days after it ended. It is also true that this is the year when the web came into full political flower, and I'm going to touch on that with some specificity. But just to take one example, the obsession with polls and their proliferation spread totally into the general population, or at least the general population of those who care about politics. I have come to believe that the American economic meltdown happened in large measure because last fall everybody at a computer, including hedge fund traders, investment bankers, and mortgage securitizers, weren't paying attention to their work. They were clicking back and forth between RealClearPolitics, PoliticsHome.com, and 538.com to find the latest polling from Ohio. Um, I could be wrong about this. Uh, it is also clear that in 2008, YouTube became the permanent repository of anything any candidate or supporter had ever said, captured by a whole array of new devices, cell phone cameras or what have you, th thus producing a material for an endless stream of embarrassments and resignations from campaigns and apologies. This is all true, and there's more. But it is at least instructive to remember the fundamental terrain on which this campaign was fought out from the beginning. It was the electorate's intense dissatisfaction with the way things were going, and its intense hunger for change of a dramatic kind. Back in early 2007, and I would remind you, before the first real hint of economic trouble was in the wind, some 70% of respondents, in answer to what I regard as a critical benchmark question, how do you think things are going? Things okay or are they off on the wrong track? 70% or more said the country was seriously off on the wrong track. That's, that's some of the highest negative numbers you will find given the then economic climate. In addition to which the outgoing president's job approval numbers were under 30%, which at that point you are getting into Jimmy Carter territory or Nixon after Watergate. So I mentioned this at the outset to suggest as a thought experiment that if you knew nothing about what the next year and a half would bring, if you knew nothing about the identity of the candidates, if you knew nothing about the ebb and flow of events, but something about American political history, you might have wagered that a party seeking to retain the White House for a third term, always a difficult uh, endeavor, with an incumbent president with record low approval ratings and a profoundly unhappy electorate would have trouble keeping the White House. But what this, was this terrain really reflected in the media presentation of the race as it began? in early 2007, or actually mid-2007, when the pace began to quicken. The assumptions most in evidence back then were these. On the Republican side, Senator John McCain, his campaign was dead, kaput, finished, put a fork in it. Campaign finance woes, staff desertions of 5% of Republicans 
said they would support him, and he was in general in, oh, in disfavor with the Republican conservative base going all the way back to 2000. So the battle was going to come down to Rudy Giuliani, Fred Thompson, and Mitt Romney. On the Democratic side, Senator Hillary Clinton was the odds-on favorite. Indeed, every year, at the end of the year, uh, there's a big dinner in Washington, a party. I'm, I'm not invited, but that's fine. I'm not bitter. Uh, and these folks, these ultimate insiders are polled. Uh, and Clinton was, was a choice of more than 80% she was going to be the nominee. By the way, my recollection is these people are always wrong. The insiders. They're never, ever right, but they're insiders. Now, because the issue of media coverage was so centered on, on the Democratic primary, because that primary lasted so much longer, the Republican race, contrary to a lot of predictions, was over very quickly by, by Super Tuesday, in effect. I want to very briefly describe the Republican race in, in, with respect to the media, and then move to the Democratic race, and then we'll look at the general election, and then these people will tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. It'll be exciting. Um, one of the most significant media impacts of the Republican race happened actually back in the fall of 2006. And it's a chain of events that owes something to a very classic PBS show from long ago called Connections, hosted by James Burke. This was a show that, that would go from one event to another over the centuries, showing how one was linked to the other, so that the creation of the Hanseatic League in the 13th century inevitably led to the invention of saran wrap. Uh, it was that kind of thing. It was an intellectual show. So here's my version of that. It's 2006, and Virginia Senator George Allen is waging a re-election campaign, which is the lead-up to his effort to become the Republican nominee as the champion of social conservatism. He is facing um, Jim Webb, former uh, a novelist of some repute, Vietnam combat veteran. Okay. So the Webb campaign, not that Webb, Webb with two Bs, the Jim Webb campaign has a, a campaign aide that they send around with a little camera to follow George Allen around hoping to capture him in a moment of weakness. This guy is a, I would say in the politically correct way, happens to be a South Asian. No, he was a South Asian and that's critical. So Senator Allen spots him and makes a comment at him and calls him makaka, um, a phrase that he said was just a nonsense phrase, but by some wild coincidence happens to be a term of racial insult directed at dark-skinned North Africans by Europeans who live in North Africa, which Senator Allen's mother was. Him claiming that this was a kind of fortuitous slip of the tongue would be like me as a Jew saying, Schwarze, is that an insult to black people? Gee, I had no idea. It had a huge impact because this aide captured this moment, threw it up on YouTube, and it played throughout the campaign. One of the things about YouTube is it never dies. It's there forever. A momentary slip, gaff, whatever you want to call it, is now a permanent thing that any station covering the web um, Allen race goes right back to YouTube and gets it. What happens? George Allen loses that campaign by three-tenths of one percent and decides, obviously, not to run for president, meaning there's no obvious social conservative in the race. And at that point, Mitt Romney's advisors say, wait a minute, you're a former pragmatic, pro-choice, pro-gay rights governor of Massachusetts. This ain't going to fly in the Republican Party, and we now have an opening. Now you can run as a born-again social conservative, which not only split that wing of the party, but severely undermined Mitt Romney's credibility and made John McCain a much more attractive candidate. Now, that's a theory. But it's one way of showing you how an, uh, this new device has consequences that you have to take, take a step back and look at 
to see how this resonates. But I think actually what really happened in the Republican primary was best described tongue-in-cheek by Rich Lowry, the editor of the National Review. He said the only way to explain how John McCain could have been nominated, the only way, was that McCain got everybody, all the other candidates in a room and liquored them up and then told them what he needed. He said, Governor Romney, I need you to run as a, a, a social conservative so that you'll look like an unprincipled flip-flopper and open up, okay? Uh, Governor Huckabee, I need you to go to Iowa and beat Mitt Romney to undermine his inevitability strategy. Uh, Giuliani, I need you to spend three million bucks in New Hampshire and then leave so that state is now my playing field to anybody who's not on the hard right. Uh, Senator Fred Thompson, I need you to wake up just long enough from your six-month slumber to go to South Carolina, split the conservative vote so I can win it. And they did. Okay. Now, that probably didn't happen. But it shows you the unlikelihood. The, the split among his opponents and the fact that unlike every past Republican race, there was no obvious front runner. That's the startling thing about Republicans. They always have the logical next guy. They, they're an orderly party. They take their turn. The first Bush had to wait for, Reagan had to wait for Ford. Bush had to wait for Reagan. Dole had to wait for Bush. This time there was no obvious candidate, which meant that for the first time since Teddy Roosevelt, who, who only got to the White House through an assassin's bullet, the Republicans nominated an insurgent. And it also demonstrates that even in the Republican Party, this desire for change, nobody was chanting four more years the way they were in 2004. And, that, and, and those were the, were the, to me, the political realities that drove that campaign. That and the fact that the Republicans, unlike Democrats, had winner-take-all primaries. In states like New York and New Jersey and others, you win by one vote, you won all the delegates. That was designed for Rudy Giuliani in the Northeast that wound up cinching McCain's nomination. What I really can't find beside that YouTube incident is any real um, media impact. Yes, the New Hampshire primary where McCain came alive certainly was covered as McCain's comeback, but that wasn't a media narrative. That was the reality. McCain had won that state in 2000 by 19 points. Independents and Democrats could vote in that primary. It was the place where he had to win or die, and he won and survived. So with that in mind, let me turn to the Democrats. And I'm going to take a bite at, first bite at this issue of media bias. It, it had a real interesting flavor last year because, first of all, it surfaced in the Democratic primary, and, and for the last four decades, by and large, it's been an article of faith among conservatives and Republicans that the media are biased in favor of liberals and Democrats. Um, and it is certainly true that the overwhelming majority of reporters vote Democratic. There is no point to denying that. It is true. You can argue about what it means. But this time, it was centered in the Democratic primary, and it involved issues of race and gender, which generate heat, if not always light. I mean, this, these are very emotional matters. So if you look at strictly through the prism of media coverage, Hillary Clinton went through the whole first eight or nine months of, of 2007, assuming, as I said, as the overwhelming favorite. In fact, I was dispatched by my executive producer in the fall of 07 to do a piece on why nobody had laid a glove on Hillary Clinton. Um, and I decided to interview Mike Murphy, a prominent Republican strategist. You see him a lot on Meet the Press, one of the smartest people around. And I put the question to him, and he said, well, that's okay, but you should, you should know I don't think she's going to be the nominee. And shrewdly, I asked, why not? Those of you looking for a career in journalism, keep, the, keep notes. Somebody says something surprising, try to follow up. <laughs> and 
And I said, well, why do you think that? He said, because this is a change election and Senator Clinton can't be the change candidate. Now, if you remember what I started out with, the fundamental terrain of this campaign, that intense desire to change, you, I think you have a hint of where I'm going. So we had incidents. Uh, Clinton muffed a question about driver's licenses for illegal aliens. It became a, a big kerfuffle in the press. And some of her supporters said, you see, Obama muffed that same question, and she got all the heat. She, that shows you that the media is in the tank. The second thing that happened was the coverage of the Obama phenomenon. I mean, here was this freshman senator, a, a guy who he himself described in his convention speech that brought him to national attention, a skinny black kid with a funny name, with no experience of the kind that most presidents have demonstrated as candidates, generated enormous crowds, enormous enthusiasm, um, enormous amount of money, which is a key I'll get to later. And, it drew, and, and the coverage of that enthusiasm um, reflected that drive. This was the source of Chris Matthews' endlessly mock comment that when I hear Obama speak, a thrill runs up my leg. Or maybe it's down his leg. I, I may, I, it was the reason why NBC's Lee Cowan said, you know, when you cover an, a, a, an Obama, then it's hard to stay objective. Uh, and the coverage of Obama as the exciting new guy on the block uh, with race clearly a, although I do not think the only reason, led to the conclusion that on the part of it, the press was in the tank for Obama. The apotheosis of this was a Saturday Night Live sketch, you may remember, where in the middle of a debate they ask him, the moderators, and they ask him, are you comfortable? Can we get you a pillow? Uh, a, a, a sketch that Hillary Clinton herself referenced in a subsequent debate. And it's, it, it's not only that fervor, but the movement of that campaign, as Obama began to demonstrate his chops, resulted in a fair number of Clinton supporters arguing that the press was holding her to a harsher standard because, in part, she was a woman. It was a very well, a much noted New York Times op-ed piece where Gloria Steinem, the iconic first-generation feminist, said it, was, it had been unimaginable for a woman with Obama's credentials to emerge as a serious candidate. Geraldine Ferraro, first woman VP candidate argued if he were white, he never would have been given that kind of, of run. Uh, Clinton campaign talked a lot about the old boys network uh, who didn't want a woman in their clubhouse. Um, now, I, I took a plunge into this controversy because the anchor of the show that I appear on is Katie Couric, first woman to solo anchor a newscast and who had felt the sting of what she saw as gender-based criticism when she took the job. And I called people who had made this assertion, and I did the best job I can, and I found myself completely unable to disentangle what part of the coverage was based on the fact that Hillary Clinton was a woman, and what part was based on the fact that she was this woman, a woman who had come to prominence as first lady because she'd married the guy who became the boss, and maybe more important, she represented to a lot of people a return to the Clinton years. Now again, if the fundamental terrain of the campaign was change, a return to the Clinton years wasn't what people, even Democrats, necessarily wanted. Obama's knew that full well. I mean, his whole campaign rhetoric was we have to turn the page. We have to go beyond the arguments of the 90s. And, and that was a slap at the Clinton folks as well as Bush and, and Bush Sr. And, and Jr. That's what Michael Murphy was getting at when he said that Obama couldn't, that Clinton couldn't be a change candidate. 
It's what the Clinton campaign could never figure out. They knew. They're not dumb. Uh, they understood this. Her first slogan was ready for change, ready to lead. But it was impossible to convince voters that Clinton, particularly as Bill Clinton began to take a more dominant role in the campaign, was changed. The Clinton campaign believed, you, you guys are crazy. Of course she's changed. She'd be the first one president. How can that not be changed? Well, if your name is Clinton, that's how. And it also opened the door for Clinton, for Obama, to make the argument, look what experience got us. Especially in a Democratic primary where every plausible candidate except Obama had been for the Iraq war. So it was what I called in a widely unread book many years ago, political judo, where you take your weakness and your opponent's strength and you flip it. You want experience? You want the people who brought you the Iraq war? You want the people who brought you all that partisan bickering? I'm different. And in that sense, everything about Obama that should have been a negative, the thin resume, thinnest resume since Grover Cleveland, for those of you keeping score, the fact that he was an oddly named guy, the fact that he was black, the fact that he said in a wonderful speech, you know, he, he said, my middle name was given to me by somebody who obviously never thought I'd ever run for president. And yet for a lot of people, young folks most especially, as you'll see, that very distance from the conventional political model was an asset. Um, now, two other points I want to make about this gender thing and Clinton, and then we'll move on to the general. Um, well, maybe two and a half points. The first was that when I would ask people about this, they always came back with the same three or four examples. Tucker Carlson on, on MSNBC saying, when I see Senator Clinton, I want to cross my legs. You know, that's a problem between him and a therapist. Um, or Chris Matthews' comment. Or the three dopes, uh, I shouldn't say, I, you know, the, I think they were college kids who went to a Clinton event and held up a sign saying, iron my shirt. Now, these are all worthy of critique. They do not represent media coverage of Clinton. All right? and, and a lot of times the evidence, the Clinton campaign made a tape proving media, but it was the same examples over and over. But... Look back to New Hampshire. Here's another example where I think the media really did have an impact. Old media, the one I work in. The night before the New Hampshire primary, when every poll, including Clinton, showed Obama with a double-digit lead, uh, Clinton had appeared at a diner, one of those, you know, sit down and talk with ordinary people. And a woman asked her, how do you do it? Just meaning, how do you get up every day and do it? And somehow that question got to her. And you may remember this, those of you who still watch television. Uh, she welled up. She couldn't talk for a few minutes. She was trying to talk about how much she felt about the issues. Every, every network, cable and broadcast, ran uninterrupted, enormous by television standards, time. Two, our, our air was four minutes of Clinton just unmediated. This is the night before the primary. It is the last thing that voters saw. And, when you, and by the way, nobody was polling late into the night. When you want to know how could that have happened, how could everybody have been so fooled, I think, again, I, I can't prove this, but my strong sense is that last image, speaking to a Democratic electorate that basically, like both these people, tilted the balance. Okay. But what happened after the New Hampshire primary was even more instructive when you come to the question of media bias. There followed. Now, remember, Clinton wins. Obama's knocked on his heels. Suddenly, the favorite who lost in Iowa may look like kind of second life. There were this spate of endorsements of Obama all coming from credentialed Democratic women. 
Claire McCaskill, Senator from Missouri, Jean Carnahan, former Senator from Missouri, Kathleen Sebelius, Governor of Kansas, Janet Napolitano, Governor of Arizona, Caroline Kennedy. Now, there are different reasons for these endorsements, but it's hard to see these folks as embracing an anti-feminist movement. They were part of the parade of endorsements, in my view, that reflected the need, the, the hunger for change, and in part feeling that a lot, a lot of Democrats who felt that, you know, the Clinton years were great for the Clintons, but not so hot for the Democratic Party. Now, the second point, okay, Super Tuesday happens, it's a draw. Obama goes on to win 11 straight primaries. She's out of money. He's like Scrooge McDuck, it's fallen out of the ceilings. The press, a lot of the press is saying, all right, all right, come on, Hillary, get out. And what happens? She starts winning primaries. She wins Pennsylvania, she wins Ohio, she wins Texas, she wins West Virginia, she wins the, the bulk of the later primaries. In other words, horrible to think about, the voters weren't paying all that much attention to what the press was demanding, which is a point, I think, that needs constant underlining. We aren't as powerful as we think we are, thank God, and we're not as powerful as our critics think we are. Which is a segue into my last point about the, the, the um, primaries. Look, it, it's frustrating to me that some of my colleagues don't ever bother to just look at the numbers. They're right there, they're free, you can get them easily. This race was a tie. Each of them got a, roughly 18 million votes, depending on whether you count half of Florida, two-thirds of Michigan. It's a tie. The split among delegates, pledged delegates, was 100 delegates out of, I think, 3,000 plus. What happened in the primaries, and it does have a media point, was that the Obama campaign understood the mechanics and the rules of the contest, and Hillary Clinton's campaign did not. Okay? Now, what, why? The Clinton campaign assumed that 2008 was going to be the last 25 years. Over early, you know, by, by Super Tuesday at the latest, all done, finished, wrapped up. Terry McAuliffe, the chair of the Clinton, camp, of the Clinton campaign, at a gathering in early 07, my wife remembers this, said, I mean, he's a very, he's a cheerleader kind of guy. He says, over by two Super Tuesday. Done. Guaranteed. Take it to the bank. Now, what they forgot, what the Obama campaign knew, was that under the rules of the Democratic Party, you don't win that many more delegates than the loser if you win a primary. You've got to win by like two-thirds. The, the Democrats treat their delegates like a, like, the parent, like a cake at a kid's birthday party, you know, where every slice has to be as even as possible. So that in most places, for instance, if you're running a congressional district here in California and there are four delegates and you get 60% of the vote and your opponent gets 40, you each get two delegates which is why you can win a primary by a lot and not get that many delegates. What the Obama campaign understood was if you go to a caucus state and kick butt, I mean, get in there with an organization and, and catch the Clinton campaign asleep and win big, you will actually do better than by winning a big state by this much. Here's, for me, the essence of that campaign. Obama got more delegates by winning the Kansas and Idaho caucuses than Clinton got winning the Pennsylvania and Ohio primaries because he won by so much. Now, why is this a point about the media? Because it spotlights what was really the importance of the new media. Or to be more precise, new ways of sharing and spreading information. Yeah, this was, the web was a big deal in this campaign. Uh, the internet overtook newspapers as the second biggest source of information among people 18 to 29. TV and the internet were the same, dominant everything else. 
Um, and yeah, as I mentioned on YouTube, you could find things that, that had an impact on campaigns. I, I will divert for one minute to tell you the story. Uh, I was covering the National Rifle Association when Giuliani, then the favorite, was speaking. And he wasn't a big favorite at the NRA because, as many of New York, he actually wanted to, you know, stop people from carrying guns into places. So in the middle of the speech, he whips out his cell phone. His cell phone rings. And he opens it up. He's talking to an audience. He says, oh, hi, honey. It's my wife. And he goes into this kind of, yes, I love you too. Yes, she says hello. A, a, a moment that was supposed to endear us to a man who had, after all, had some marital difficulties. So within an hour, up on YouTube, the Romney campaign posts a video of exactly the same thing happening by some coincidence at another Giuliani event a month earlier, thus suggesting this perhaps was not the spontaneous event it looked like. Um, and you saw this throughout. I mean, Obama's biggest challenge came courtesy of new media in the sense that the sermons of Reverend Wright were thrown on YouTube and once again, any, the same two or three minutes, or actually in Wright's case because he had a lot more to say, the same incendiary sermons were cited over and over and over again. Obama's worst moment when he told his San Francisco audience that white working class folks are bitter and they cling to their guns and their religions, that was recorded I think on a cell phone camera or cell phone mic by a, uh, and, and sent to the Huffington Post and then accessed by every network. Um, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is what the Obama campaign did with this new media. Now if you are interested in this, I urge you to read a piece in last June's Atlantic Monthly, which you can find on the web, by Joshua Green about exactly what Obama did. And I will boil it down in a few seconds. Starting with a group of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs drawn to Obama, they designed a structure based on their own preferences and experiences, abandoning a top-down structure in favor of something we'll call, oh, I don't know, let's come up with a brand new phase. I know, a web, um, with multiples of connections that moved horizontally, not vertically. They took the fundraising ability of Howard Dean and married it to the whole new social networking uh, system. They not only realized you could raise enormous sums of money with no transaction costs on the web, right? No postage, no printing, nothing. But then, what do they do? If you sent a contribution to the Obama campaign, uh, that was only the beginning. You were texted, you were emailed, you were told of meetings in your group, you were asked, can you make phone calls? Do you want to build your own fundraising network? Um, Work enough hours, maybe you'll, you'll get to meet the candidate. Um, maybe you'll get an invitation to the convention. In some of the caucus states, the Obama campaign was there months before, I'm sorry, the Obama volunteers were there before the campaign ever got there. Um, and in, in caucuses, intensity and organization matter. And you cannot overemphasize the importance of this. Not just because it gave Obama $300 million more than McCain by the time the campaign was over. Because you know, you go to somebody and you ask for 20 bucks, you go back, a month later, they'll give you another 20 bucks. Not like a Clinton campaign that maxed out very early. But the organization that I'm talking about then had an impact throughout the country. I went down to North Carolina the week before the election. 15,000 Obama volunteers all over the state organized to such a degree and so intense that one guy told me that he was in Obama's office making phone calls on his cell, when his cell phone rang. And it was somebody asking for a contribution for Obama and it was the person behind him. <laughs> That's how in-depth they were. By the way, on election day, Obama won North Carolina by 1% of the vote. So this is what we're talking about. 
that, that, the re, that the impact of the new media can be looked at, oh yes, it's interesting, YouTube and the blogs and the webs and MS and, and Oberman and O'Reilly, but when you really look at the impact politically, it was what the Obama campaign did with this new stuff that revolutionized everything about political organizing and fundraising. Now, um, just a few minutes of the on the general, and then we'll turn to this. I'm staying within the time you gave me because I want to. Uh, okay, I'm going to talk about tone of the coverage, the Sarah Palin story, the debates, and then a couple of wrap-ups. If you trust the Pew Center's findings, Dana talked about this, this uh, earlier today, and I do, the coverage of John McCain was indeed far more negative. 57% to 14, um, as opposed to 36% to 29% favorable for Obama. And by the way, if, whether it was biased or not, the public believed, by a 70 to 9 percentage, the public believed the press wanted Obama to win. So the Saturday Night Live skits really had an impact, or something did. But here's the point about this. What was the negative coverage about? Overwhelmingly, it was about the fact that McCain was trailing in the polls. Because most political coverage is, to use the old cliche, horse race coverage. Who's winning? Who's losing? And for almost the entire fall campaign, McCain was behind. And polling now is not done on a daily, weekly, it's done like every 30 minutes. Every organization does polling. And it obsesses the political, it's the crack cocaine of political journalism. It can't get enough of it. So when you say that the McCain coverage was negative, which was, I assume, true, what, we're not talking about, you know, left-wing journalists saying, what are we going to do to this guy? It's, oh, look, new poll, McCain behind. That's a negative story. And that, more than anything else, is, explains what had happened. Now, you can find ideolo ideology in some of these other uh, studies, content studies. I mean, here's a shock. MSNBC was overwhelmingly favorable to Obama. Fox was slightly more negative. Gee, you know, wow, I never would have thought of that. But you can't make broad judgments about the media coverage based on two more of the more explicitly political cable networks. So when you say that McCain got negative coverage, remember what you're talking about. You're talking about coverage of a losing campaign. Now, Sarah Palin, a fascinating case study. Uh, I'm getting a little personal, not personal personal, but tell you my reaction. When Sarah Palin was nominated, even before that, that really effective convention speech, I thought it was a 10 strike. That's a bowling term. I'm sick and tired of football terms and poker terms and politics. So I'm, I'm looking for new cliches. Uh, it was a 10 strike. It was a three cushion shot. It was a grand slam with a finesse. You pick your own. It wasn't just that she excited the conservative base, which she did, or that she was a woman because Kay Bailey Hutchinson or Meg Whitman would not have gotten nearly that fervor. It was that she perfectly fit an iconic element of American popular culture. The plain-spoken, regular folk, salt-of-the-earth woman, scorned and mocked by the pompous, pinstriped elite. You have seen this again and again. Uh, not sure, I may make you references that are way too early for some of you, but bear with me. The Beverly Hillbillies, Dolly Parton in 9 to 5, Norma Ray, Aaron Brockovich, Judy Holliday in the Solid Gold Cadillac, if you really want to go back. Now, it's just that since these are all Hollywood constructs and 99% of Hollywood writers are liberal, these women are all of the left. Well, Sarah Palin was of the populist right. And her, you know, she's fighting back against the elitists who undermine traditional values and mess up our schools and tax our small business folks. Her potential appeal, was, appeal I thought, was right at the heart of working class folk 
who for years have bedeviled liberals by voting for Republicans on cultural grounds. And the fact that some of the early coverage of her was scurrilously unfair, you know, she wasn't really pregnant, that baby is really hers, not the daughter's, only made her more sympathetic. So what happened? Well, she was the victim of the same kind of media event that Ted Kennedy suffered from 29 years earlier. Now, this may not sound like a logical thing, so let me give me a minute here. Back in 1979, Ted Kennedy had decided to run against Jimmy Carter for the Democratic nomination way ahead in the polls. He sat down for an interview with Roger Mudd, then a prominent CBS correspondent, and Roger Mudd asked him the following question. Senator, why do you want to be president? It produced several moments of near incoherence, widely reported, and Mark Kennedy is a very vulnerable candidate. Now, question for you, future journalists or journalist studies or media studies people, is that a gotcha question? Is that a mugging? It's a softball. It's the kind of question you, you hope you get asked, unless, of course, you have never sat down and thought, why do I want to be president? Now, that's what, what happened. What did Katie Cork ask Sarah Palin? I'm not talking about Charles Gibson, because I think the complaint there had merit. You know, Gibson, as somebody wrote, treated her like a kind of a professor, treated a not very bright student, you know, little glasses at the end of the nose. What do you, you know what the Bush doctrine is? There actually are five of them. But here's what Katie Couric asked Sarah Palin. Um, you've said that you have foreign policy experience because Alaska borders Russia. Uh, can you explain that? By the way, my, when Sarah Palin was nominated, my wife called me and said, you know, Alaska's right next to Russia. And I laughed because it was a ridiculous argument to make. As far, but she made it, Sarah Palin. It is a measure of her answer that when Tina Fey did her famous Sarah Palin impression on Saturday Night Live, most of what she said was what Palin had said verbatim to Katie Couric. Quote, we have trade missions back and forth. We do, it's very important when you consider even national security issues, the Russia, as, as Putin rears his head and comes into the airspace of the United States of America, where, where do they go? It's Alaska, it's just right over the border. It, it's from Alaska that we send those out to make sure that an eye is being kept on this very powerful nation because they're right there. Or consider another question. Apart from Roe versus Wade, what Supreme Court decisions do you disagree with? For an ardent conservative, how tough is this? Banning school prayer? The whole range of decisions that made it tougher to put criminals away? Eminent domain? And she's a governor of Alaska, right? The, you know, the court permitted governments to, get, to take private property under circumstances most conservatives and a heck of a lot of liberals thought was dangerous. One other question. So what do you read? This is a trap question. So what, the point about this, again, is, is that a media-generated event? Is, that a, is there something complicated about analyzing that? Or is it the fact that, sh that someone, a prominent person, is asked a question and cannot answer it? She flunked an easy test, which led to a growing feeling not just that she wasn't ready to be president, but that John McCain, in his first important decision as a nominee, the candidate of experience, had made a very bad judgment. Last point, debates. This is, you're going to have to bear with me because what does Billy Crystal always say? Don't get me started. Um, I've never been invited really to be part of an important debate. I've done a couple of problems, but mostly because I've always threatened to ask math questions uh, of the candidates. You know, let's find something nobody's briefed them on. Train leaves New York going there at 80 miles an hour. Train leaves Chicago going there. And do you think Amtrak should subsidize, you know? So anyway, or what's your favorite, who's your favorite Beatle? I think that's a pretty revealing question. Anybody who says Paul, I don't vote for. Um, 
But here again, you know, these debates go into millions of homes. And in most cases, I think, the candidate's connection with voters matters way more than what the press says. I mean, there are exceptions. When Jerry Ford prematurely liberated the Eastern Europe in 1976, the press had to point that out to the public before the public realized that Ford had really made a mistake. But by and large, voters pick up a sense of who they are comfortable with. So let me just show you what I think happened. I, don't, I have stopped going to debates because they, you, you, you never get a sense of what's really going on. Worst place to watch a debate is in the hall because you, you aren't seeing what 50 million people are seeing. But the second worst place is in a press room. They, they take, they, all these debates take place on college campuses. So you're generally herded, herded into a gym, hundreds of you in long tables watching huge screens. And basically what goes on during these debates is people are gossiping, they're setting up where you're going to go for dinner, uh, can you believe how stupid my boss is, um, you come here often. Um, they're not really watching the debate the way most people are. So what I do, I mean I learned this this year in New Hampshire the last weekend, I was in one of these cavernous barns. And none of us really noticed that Hillary Clinton was connecting with those voters and Obama wasn't. So I stayed back. And I'm watching the kind of first stuff that comes into your computer. And it's all about how Obama's on the defensive because he's saying I agree with McCain about some stuff. And there's all this, oh, you know, the Obama people, oh, but McCain's beating them up. And the McCain people are already putting on a YouTube showing all the time that Obama's saying I agree with you. And I'm thinking I'm on a different planet. What are these people watching? I saw a candidate doing exactly what the theme of the campaign, his campaign had said. I'm tired of old arguments. Let's be reasonable about this. Yeah, John, that's a good idea, but I think I could do it better. He was the civil, respectable candidate. And by the way, if I may be blunt with you folks, if you are a young black guy with a funny name debating a white-haired white man, it's probably not a bad idea to be civil. In case, you know, you're dealing with some primal racial fears, that's not a bad instinctive thing to do. And so <clears throat> the instant polls come out, and suddenly, by three to one, people say, hey, Obama won that debate. And all of a sudden, you know, you watch the press coverage. Well, of course he did, because of... <laughs> So what it, the debates fundamentally did was to give the public, the, the electorate, the chance to do what they wanted to do, which is to vote for change. That's a key part of debates when you're, when you're the, in effect, the challenger. It's what helped Reagan win a landslide in 1980. It's what helped Clinton win in, in 92. It's what helped George W. Bush in 2000. You know, the comfort level, which brings us to election day to end. What didn't happen? Did massive new numbers of people go to the polls? No, turnout was up slightly from about 60 to 62%. Why? Because a lot of Republicans stayed home. They were disillusioned, they didn't like McCain that much, they thought he was going to lose. Did young people surge to the polls in record numbers? Well, they were 17% of the electorate in 2004, 18% in 2008. But here's what did happen. In 2000, Gore and Bush split the, the young vote, 18 and 29. 2004, Kerry won by nine points. 2008, um, Obama beat McCain by roughly 32 points among young voters. That's almost all of his popular plurality came from that. That's the key, and that's where that new media and all those connections made a difference. What about the Bradley effect, you know? Did white voters tell pollsters one thing and then vote against a guy they, weren't, they didn't want to admit? Um, on election day, the real clear politics average of polls had Obama up by about seven and a half points. He won by seven and a half points. Well, did white working class Democrats defect on race? Well, in fact, 
Nationally, as you've heard, if you were here earlier, Obama did slightly better among white voters than Kerry and Gore had done, and he won in the same districts where I was hearing real concern on the part of Democrats in, in Pennsylvania, around Scranton, in Ohio, around suburban Cleveland. In all of those states, Obama won by more than anybody really thought he would. And why? Look, it's a real simple thing. The last six weeks of this campaign were dominated by one fear, which unfortunately has proven true, that we were in the worst economic circumstances ever. And under those circumstances, you can take every other issue and just forget about it. So I'm done. We conclude where we began. The argument I make is that in most elections, this one included, it is usually a mistake to focus on what the media did, on what they performed, if you mean to analyze what happened. Yes. How politicians master the new media is important. Roosevelt with radio, uh, Kennedy and later Reagan with television, Obama with the web. And there, there are events that can make a difference. But as a general proposition, I think it is incremental. For me, obsessing with day-to-day -day media coverage is like looking at the ripples on the surface of a river. What's harder to see and what matters a whole lot more is the shift in the riverbed. Thank you. I um, want to get all of the participants up again, Dana Maestro, Christopher McCauley, Lance Bennett, and Rod Hart. And I want to really take this opportunity to say to Jeff, your talk was so compelling for me. And I really hope you guys are ready to move to the mics that we have for you here so that you can engage. This is going to be a dialogue and we're going to have a Q&A session that you're all invited to participate in. Um, I want to take a cue from um, Dean Oliver's discussion and kind of um, open up this discussion with just a brief um, uh, framing device. Um, in October, I was in Canada doing a visiting professorship, and um, I was doing uh, public talks on the Obama uh, campaign and the coverage of that that um, um, campaign, and I was also watching Canadian media because they were in the throes of their own election, and of course they could care less about their election. They were all you know concerned about the Obama campaign. So one of the um, newspapers invited me to do an op-ed piece that appeared um, in the newspaper on election day on January 20th, and so I just want to read you the opening um, comment to um, what I the opening paragraph to that op-ed piece because I can't believe how much it ties into everything that we've been talking about. Um, so uh, it also is kind of framing a book that I'm working on um, about the media coverage and race of Obama. And the title of my book is tentatively um, called Obama Mia or Obama Mia. All right. Um, Obama Mia and the Where You At Generation Mobilize for Change They Believe In. As I eagerly awaited yesterday's historic inauguration of President Barack Hussein Obama, I reflected upon a few of the most memorable moments of media infamy along the way to this wondrous magical day. Moments, gentle reader, that still make me want to holler, throw up both my hands. And that, Chris, when you were saying you were, you know, we couldn't say so. Anyway. Um, so to, to borrow some apt phrasing from the late great musician Marvin Gaye, in the interest of full disclosure, I confess to being one of those doubters who up until the end did not believe America could find the will to even nominate, let alone elect an African American to this honor and responsibility. But as Jeff pointed out, it was such a bad economy, of course, you know, anybody would be better than George Bush, right? I still harbored fears that I would awaken to find that it had all been a dream. But then came election day 2008, 
and a genuine feeling of joyful shock and awe that I believe was shared by most of us incredulous three Bs, black baby boomers. Emails flooded my inbox, kindly drubbing me about my public pronouncements that, though he were the best man, Mr. Obama would not win. And to all those who um, emailed me and said, now, what have you to say for yourself, professor? Um, because the folks in, in Canada knew Obama was going to win. Um, and so to those emails, I responded promptly and unequivocally. I have never been so glad to be so wrong. Um, and so with that, I wanted to um, kind of open up the, the, the question by saying that, um, Jeff, you raised some very important issues, and I, was, um, I want to uh, respectfully disagree with you on one point. As you said, you know, we're going to hold you to, um, uh, to some of these statements that uh, you made. Um, one of them was that the reporters for uh, traditional media um, are left-leaning. For the most part, they all vote Democratic. But you didn't mention the, the converse is that the owners are mostly Republican and right-leaning. And so there's a sort of fundamental tension in the kind of self-policing that reporters do. And so I wanted to kind of ask you to maybe kind of look at that tension a little bit. Um, and then there's the other point that I found your um, discussion about the polling is really rich because I think the, the fact that you point out that um, the media had their the the uh, media mainstream media had their eye on the polling and that you know horse race and not all these other events that you point out led to the um, the Obama win, particularly the um, uh, the new media. Okay. So my question um, then to you and the rest of the panelists is, um, do you think the problem was that the mainstream media, and as you said, we can't really lump them all together, but I'm thinking electronic and print. Do you think they were covering the 2004 campaign, whereas the, um, the internet and the where you at generation were clearly remaking electoral po political coverage with the blogosphere and you know, those new media? So I want to kind of pose that question to you guys first. But first of all, the right um, the, um, the Republican-dominated well, owners, okay. and then... To me, after 30 years in mainstream media, um, this notion of owners imposing a, um, you know, a kind of limit on the press in terms of political coverage is hooey. Uh, I, I, it, it just... The, imp, the, the notion... Well, let's just take an example. NBC is owned by General Electric. Does a lot of defense business, I guess. Um, the notion that NBC, and particularly its subsidiary, MSNBC, had, had any coverage reflected by that, you need to find that out. You, you mean, it's an assertion, it's a guess, that in, in my experience is utterly empty. I mean, it just doesn't happen that way. Look, um, when Bill Paley, Bill Paley was a big Republican at the time when Dan Rather was covering the Nixon White House. Um, and the part of the reason for that, I mean, this may change as our jobs become ever more vulnerable. The idea that if Bill Paley had called up um, Walter Cronkite and said, hey, you know what, you gotta, you gotta tell Rather to ease up on Nixon, there would have been a revolt because it, that argument ignores the kind of institutional um, impulses of the press. All I can tell you is I've never seen it. And the point about the, the, the political affiliations of the press, I mean, there's just no doubt that the, you know, any measurement that I have ever seen is they overwhelmingly vote Democratic, but, and this is something that I know conservatives have a hard time believing, that does not mean that reflects how they cover the campaign. Ask Al Gore. Um, it, it, is, it is more than just self, 
It's not just a matter of illusion that you can go cover a campaign and divorce yourself from what you want to happen, because what you most don't want to happen is to be wrong. So that, for instance, the first campaign that I covered was Ronald Reagan. Now, you know, I used to work for Robert Kennedy. I don't exactly come out of a Young Americans for Freedom background, <laughs> but what I thought I saw in that campaign from the get-go was that Ronald Reagan was going to clean Jimmy Carter's clock if he got the chance. And the fact that I did or didn't want that to happen at some level is, is like the last thing that I think about. I think I was the first correspondent anywhere to, to suggest that Mike Huckabee might be a factor in this campaign. You know, I don't, I'm not a born-again Christian from Little Rock. I just thought he had some chops that, that, that were impressive in that campaign. That, so that's, that's where I'd go on that. I'm going to stop there because I think other people have, have wanted me want to weigh in or challenge me or say other things. So. And, and, and I also want to welcome the, the panelists to either ignore that question and then to just ask their own questions of Jeff, um, or just you know feel free to, to jump in. But please, I you know, would love to hear from, from you guys on this or address something else. I'll actually follow up on your uh, last question, which is I, I agree with almost everything you said, which is extraordinary, and including <laughs> the relationship between the formation of the Hanseatic League and the discovery of Saran Wrap, which I thought was a particularly insightful analysis. Uh, and, and the carom shots that it took to make John McCain the, the nominee. But if we buy the premise that in most cases, with the exception of episodic moments, such as the um, Makaka incident, um, the press is kind of providing information uh, and not really shaping the outcomes. I, I would agree with that. But at the same time, that, that's no longer the only media game going, as you point out, that social media, participatory media, social networking is really becoming, especially for young voters, who I think you can make a case, decided the election because of the swing that you pointed out from 2004 to 2008 that went to the, the Democrats. Huge swing. Um, and, and this is their game. This is the social media generation. And, and so we really have two media systems that are intertwined, I mean increasingly intertwined, and yet the younger voters are disconnecting from the mainstream media and connecting and participating in the social media uh, system. So I, I think that that has to be credited in terms of media making a tremendous difference. I think I, I, don't, I not only don't disagree with that, I, I mean, I heartily affirm it. I had the experience here, if I may be local, get the local angle. This actually happened here, my last class, of about 150 or 200 mm -hmm. people, I, just as a matter of curiosity, I said, uh, I knew I was kind of leaving cable for the old, old media broadcast. I said, how many of you watch the evening, one of the evening newscasts? All right, three people raised their hands. And then a couple of months later in Chicago, I was asking an audience of somewhat more seasoned people, how many of you have accessed YouTube? And they thought I was talking about like a hemorrhoid remedy. They, they, <laughs> and so what you're describing is true. The, it is the, it, there is this kind of gap. And the Republicans are now, what the Republicans are really worried about uh, is, you know, they dominated and still dominate talk radio. And that was a big impact in the 90s. Well, this new media is both the web and social networking is dominated by liberals and the left. And, if they, and, and here's why I, CBS values me so much. I figured out that younger people are going to be around a lot longer than older people. <laughs> uh, and if their voting habits stay as democratic as they are, the Republican Party has a chance. So this is something, this is absolutely right. The only other thing worth saying is the other thing that is important to note about the Obama victory, which was, you know, 
kind of in the middle, it was a solid victory, it wasn't a landslide, is that he won or tied in virtually all age groups. Um, he, and in, in however you slice it demographically, he, even in traditional ways, he still performed pretty damn well. He won the Catholic vote, which John Kerry had lost. He got 67% of the Hispanic vote. The 04 exit polls are wrong. Do not believe that Bush got 43%. There's been a study of that. He, but he got about 39, 40. He didn't, you know, McCain did much worse. But I think the key to understanding what happened in terms of where that plurality came from was overwhelmingly among young people, partly because of social networking, partly because Obama was their guy. I mean, you know, you can't ignore this, this and I, I just didn't want the speech to go on forever. I mean, the fact, oh, Obama, look, allow me to say something um, which could get me in trouble. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> it is not unknown that white kids think it's cool to, uh, to be black. You know, you get, <laughs> you've got too many suburbanites walking around with caps on backwards calling each other dog and bro. It's, it's, uh, it's not an impressive thing for this old Caucasian. But... Obama wasn't cool because he was black. Obama was cool because he was cool. Everything about him, the kind of the effect, the fact that he talked reasonably, the fact that he, could, that he was the Harvard Law Review president who could get up and kind of do the, you know, brush the dust off his shoulders, the fact that he was, the fact that he, like a lot of young people, is relatively comfortable talking about race in ways that older people would find, you know, uh, he was asked once about another candidate about whether he thought he was, you know, he he had black black chops, and Obama said, "I got to see him dance." And I was, that was about Clinton. Yeah, yeah, right. Clinton. Right, right, I got to right, see him dance right, first. Right, right. Now, you know, that's not a guy who's afraid of kind of playing, of being loose enough about this stuff to say, you know, we can go a little beyond that. So that's too long-winded, but I couldn't agree more. And if you if you want to see people who are really worried about about this stuff, uh, the Republicans, both in terms of their lack of ability at the, at the social networking and the young so, so could you elaborate just a little bit more about the Republicans? So first of all, who do they have who's cool? And secondly, <laughs> second, Michael Steele, no. Secondly, how are they going to use social media? Because that's all they're talking about right now. Well, is the, okay. the, you know, we've got to get in the social media game. How are they going to do it? Well, uh, this obsession with trying to figure this out, you know, we, they're still cleaning up from the inaugural. And uh, I've always said that for me, a lot of my colleagues are like kids in the back seat of a car on a vacation. You pull into the driveway and they're yelling, are we there yet? So I, I don't know that. But look, I, if you really, from a purely political spectrum, it doesn't answer your question. The Republicans are going to do great if Obama's economic plans don't work. And by the way, if that happens, that's going to have about as much to do with race as the return of Haley's Comet. It ain't going to be, nobody's going to say, ah, you see what proves they can't do it. It's not like the first black manager. I mean, if, if, he, if this economy collapses, that's going to take care of the Democrats. And if it doesn't, they're going to be in power for a long time. Um, well, I think what's going to, I think what is going to, there's two issues about that. It's because it's not the mechanics that's going to do it. The reason why Obama's social networking worked was in part because his people, uh, who was the co-founder of Facebook? Uh, I can't even remember his name. Who worked for the Obama campaign. They knew this stuff, but it took the candidate to do it. Um, and you know, I'd like to there's no other candidate that would have been able to, if John Edwards had had all these people working for him, I don't think he would have pulled this off. Right. Or for that matter, Hillary Clinton. It took, the reason why those entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley were so drawn to Obama was that, that he spoke their language, you know, the community organizer, the, the, the horizontal networking. That's how they made their money. 
And so there was a, the fit of the man in the moment was unusual. So I don't know how the Republicans are going to do it. Just a short observation. Uh, my observation this year was that, uh, and I've never quite seen this happen in my years of teaching, the Republican kids on campus, it was, it was sad. I felt sad for them. Um, um, man, it wasn't about ideology. It, it was really about cultural style. And so much about Obama was exactly what they want to be, really smart, really agile, uh, thoughtful, conversational, eloquent. Um, it was, and they knew that their guy, you know, was, you know, that angry old man. Um, and, I've never, and they were, you know, you talk to them in groups and stuff, and they're, um, they were just kind of frozen in, t in time. Uh, and it was really the contemplation of, of cultural style and political um, ideology. Yeah, I, to which I I'd only I... add this. I've, I... I did a piece for Slate magazine in the early part of this in which the theme of it was this. If you look at a campaign and want to try to figure out who's likely to win, remember this rule. Bugs Bunny always beats Daffy Duck. By which I mean if you know your Warner Brothers, Chuck Jones, great cartoons. Bugs is Cary Grant. Bugs is like laid back like this. He's cool. He never gets ruffled. When somebody really ticks him off, he will say to him, a la Groucho Marx, of course you realize this means war. <laughs> Whereas Daffy is, thanks for the sour persimmons, cousins. He's like ready to blow up. Now ask yourself in this campaign, who was Bugs Bunny? Who was Daffy? <laughs> in fact, by the end of the campaign, it's actually your point. John, John McCain had now morphed into Yosemite Sam. <laughs> um, you know, with the guns. That one. So that's, I mean, that's part of what I think it all fits in, that, that it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't style alone, and it wasn't cool alone. Um, it was that combination of, um, of cognitive intelligence and emotional intelligence that is unique. And I think it's one of the reasons why, when, why, the, why the Clinton take, you know, he's not ready. In a normal year, that would have been effective, probably. This year, uh, people were ready to change, and, and Obama embodied, embodied a lot you. of it. Chris, please. I, I, I just wanted to say something, uh, something about um, Obama's style, and I guess I'll take a slight issue with Jeff on this, uh, talking about his appeal to, uh, to certain white students or to, to, to young whites. To, to me, and I saw this here um, when he came and spoke uh, at City College, that, um, and it's something that we actually saw him do, I think, throughout um, his campaigning. I especially saw him do it in the South. Um, and that is, Obama has this uh, tremendous ability to um, change his style of speech um, to, to actually um, to appeal to, to a certain audience. I mean, a number of people had noticed that when, when he was in the South, I mean, he sounded like a Baptist preacher. Right? I mean, we didn't even know he had that in him, right? All of a sudden, he went down south and, you know, he's getting into the cadence and he's, he's doing church, right? Um, when, I, when I saw him sp uh, speak in, um, in, on the lawn there at, at, at City College, there are various points where he would break into, um, you know, almost like a so sort of city slang at various points. So I think that one of the things that he was able to do 
um, was to, to use a, a variety of, of ways of speaking that he tailored to, um, to individual audiences, or to, at least to some audiences. And I think that, that you know, it, it really worked. Um, you know, Weber would call this, he has charisma. And it's sometimes really hard to, um, to go, up against, uh, go up against charisma. And indeed, it was one of the big problems that the late night comedians had. Um, most of the time, the whole trick about a late night comedian, I mean the, the talk show guys, is you have to find, when they do political humor, you're talking to them, not necessarily the most plugged in audience. I don't mean Stewart, God knows, mm -hmm. or Colbert, but the, the Leno, Letterman, O'Brien, that group. So you find a trait, usually, I mean negative, preferably, and that's your joke. So Bob Dole is old. Al Gore is boring. George W. Bush is dumb. We don't even have to get into the Bill Clinton thing. Um, <laughs> the horn dog. That's the joke. Um, it was really hard, and to some extent still is, I mean, you know, to figure out what's the joke. I mean, Obama now, you, there's plenty of stuff to make fun of him now. None of his cabinet nominees have remembered to pay their taxes. That's a good political joke. But as a stylistic matter, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, what are you, what, what are you going after here? Mm -hmm. what, what's, the, what's the... Now, unfortunately, most presidents sooner or later present their flaws to us in unmistakable terms. <laughs> but it was tough. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 um, it's an interesting question as to whether or not when you talk about the press being in the tank, uh, whether they're in the tank or or whether on personal grounds, I'm not talking about his politics, because there's plenty of stuff you can argue back and forth, left and right is. All right, so I'll just give you one example from current now. You know, we have this big notion of Rush Limbaugh being encouraged, Democrats encouraging the country to think of him as the leader of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. A former Bush speechwriter, David Frum, did a piece and said, now let's see how this matches up. We have a reasonable, civil, highly eloquent, highly intelligent, physically fit, model husband and father, whose one sin is maybe he smokes a cigarette. On the other side, you've got this morbidly obese, thrice divorced, ramping and raving drug addict. Uh, how unhappy do you think the Democrats are? Why, why do you think they're working so hard to make that the match? And notice this, we're not talking about ideas here. We're talking about something else. Um, I think it was, I think, to make a long-winded answer or, or, or agreement short, I don't think we disagree because, first of all, did you notice when Hillary Clinton was campaigning in rural and southern places, she sometimes talked a little oh, bit oh, more yes. like a southern, oh, we got that Arkansas accent right, right out of Chicago? <laughs> this is not uncommon. So, Dana, I would like for you to kind of weigh in here. And, uh, I felt welcome to weigh in, but uh, <laughs> let's see. Well, I actually did have one question about... Uh, you had suggested that Obama emphasized the funny name and, uh, you, know, his, you know, anyone who named him would have never suggested that if they thought he was going to run for president to demonstrate that he was a change candidate. And, sure. And, in fact, I actually thought he did that much more strategically to demonstrate that he wasn't change. And, in fact, he was very much like the other, the white people who might be trying to vote for him because he was trying to undercut the argument that, you know, Hussein, that's a scary name, and uh, et, et cetera. So I actually had a very different take on why he was trying to 
uh, normalize this in the media and suggest it often so it was now familiar. I think he was just doing the best he could with a name that made people uncomfortable. I mean, what are you going to do? He, he, he could, it's, it's his name. He used to be, as in Columbia, he was Barry Obama. And he, per, you know, he, that's, that's part of that journey he accounts in, the, accounts in, the, in his first book. He said, no, I'm Barack. So this is a case where you, if you're given a lemon, you make lemonade. And you can either be defensive about it, you can ignore it, you can be, or you can just, this is the Al Smith dinner where you're supposed to be funny. Right. So I needed to put that in context. So what are you going to do? You're going to make a joke that everybody, that everybody can. <coughs> Look, I, there are so many parts about this that I thought were, um, were a sign that, that, that stuff has changed. I mean, you know, if, if, if you're worried about primal stereotypes, do you really play a lot of basketball? Yeah, because he's a basketball player. It was like, what, what is it? People going to make a fuss about that? I mean, that's, you know, that's just. So he's a lousy bowler, which one could expect uh, culturally. And uh, he's a fine basketball player. In fact, he made that great. He made a three point shot when he was uh, playing with the troops in, or is it, uh, Kuwait or Iraq. It's like he was saying to people, I think, cool it. It's okay. You know, we're, we're yeah, I, you, you might so notice that I'm a, Remember that time he got in a little trouble where he said, which I thought was a perfectly reasonable statement, I don't look like most people who've run for president. Right. By the way, one of the things about Obama that I may have been the only person to raise, he's from a big city. Right. And Jeff, let me... Um, um, Can I just make that? Yeah. You know oh, how much Americans don't like their presidents to be from big cities? Because the city from Thomas Jefferson on has been the place of pestilence and the old Europe. And America was farms and America was yeomen and America's was, you know... Nobody's from the big city. Even people from the big cities aren't from big cities. John Kennedy was from, like, the Cape. And John Kerry, you wouldn't know he had a $10 million townhouse on Beacon Hill. Obama, he's from Chicago. He was a community organizer. That, I, it may not be quite the historical significance of the first African-American president, but that, that, that's an interesting other stereotype that he managed to say, you know what, this is where I'm from. What are you going to do about it? Jeff, I just want to get something in here about this, uh, this issue around civility. Um, and particularly in comparison to McCain's personality. Because one of the things that I think many of us felt is that Obama did not have the option to ever get angry the way that McCain gets angry. Um, in fact, um, you know, in some ways, you kind of wonder if he chose Rahm Emanuel to be able to get out some of that anger uh, that he could he he can't express. Um, but that was really one of the things, because I mean, um, I mean, I don't think any of us in this room has seen it. But one of the things that we've certainly heard about um, is McCain's uh, just, I mean, inordinate uh, temper. Some of us have been personally experienced. Oh, okay, okay. So, and uh, yes, it's true. And, and I bring this up because uh, you heard him. Oh, okay. Um, I bring this up because I actually, one of the things that you said um, brought this to mind, and I, I kind of wanted to ask both you, the panel, and also people in the room how they felt about, or how they feel about this. Because on this issue of what it, how it is that Obama was allowed to be, I mean, um, I'm assuming, based on what it is that we've seen, um, that he does not have much of a temper, right? Um, when, he put his, when, when he put his staff together, he said one thing to them, no drama. Uh -huh. 
It was the least, it, nobody could believe this was going to happen for the whole campaign. I've never seen a staff like this. And it comes, remember when Mike Dukakis said the fish stinks from the head? Well, the fish smells good from the head, too. <laughs> um, the Clinton campaign was like, uh, I don't know what the, it was like the Jerry Springer show. Um, <laughs> people literally yelling in the most concrete Anglo-Saxon terms what they should do to each other. Uh, fights that broke out on a daily basis, the campaign manager running into her office and crying, the chief strategist. It was, it was and, and leaking to the press, by the way. The Obama campaign, there wasn't one, not when they lost New Hampshire, not when they ran into trouble with Reverend Wright. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that persuaded a lot of conservatives to back Obama, something they are now regretting given his financial policies, right. was that this guy seemed to have presidential temperament. So whether he, you know the fact that he may not have been allowed to be angry, I don't think it would have occurred to him. And but, I need to actually, I do want yeah. to sort of get the, the participatory okay. culture aspect uh, going. Oh, I'm and sorry, let me just, let me just make one, one last comment, Anna. Um, okay, so while people are coming up, okay. make it short. No, because the, the thing was this. Um, I was wondering if, in fact, Obama at any point could have complained about racism in much the same way that uh, Hillary had raised issues around sexism and how it is that she was being mm. treated. Because for me, and I think many of us felt, that would have been political suicide mm. if he had raised it in much the same way that she did. Yeah, some, some people in Canada said also that there was a reverse um, Bradley moment and it also had to do with that race thing. But, but um, please, sir, uh, can uh, you maybe just say your name if you want and then just... Joel Einhorn. Getting back to the media's effect, um, if, you, if it's a given, let's say, that the media was quite objective in covering the campaign, what do you think about the background for the campaign, namely the way the media covered all the other events in the world that were going on that may have enabled Obama to win? That's a good question. Um, and I, I, I'm going to throw it back to you because I'm not sure I'm, I'm right about this. Um, one thing about media coverage in general, not just about campaigns, is it tends to be cumulative and it tends to, it tends to be like, um, is it Newton's first law or second law? I flunked science. The body at motion continues in motion. Gene McCarthy once said, nastily as is typical of him but accurately, that the press is like blackbirds. One flies on the telephone pole, blackbird, the other, all the others. One flies away, they all fly away. So that by the time you got to the campaign, um, the narrative story of what was going on in Iraq and what was going on in the economy and what was going on in the Bush administration was negative. But now I th throw the question back to you. Did that create the reality or were they reflecting the fact that the war in Iraq was going badly, I mean, whatever you thought of the original decision, just based operationally, um, that in 2006 the Republican, all of the corruption stories were about Republicans and their, and their abuse of power, and that the middle class in America had actually lost ground since 2001. If you believe that that was the press, as I tend to do, that that was basically the press reporting, um, that, that's what happened, ex with the one exception. I think the press was very slow to pick up the fact that, in fact, Petraeus' strategy in Iraq was producing, was bearing fruit. Because they were so used to the narrative of a failed Iraq war, they couldn't look at anything and say, well, you know, that's getting better. The Times, actually, the New York Times, which every conservative hates, was, was actually an exception of this. But by and large, I, I do think the, you'd have to answer for your, on your own terms whether you think that was a, paint, a portrait painted by the press or a reflection of the fact that things had gone very bad. And the only thing I can say to that was 
by 2007, many Republicans were really, really unhappy with what had gone on. That's the best I can do. Great and uh, earlier in the previous panel, it was said that uh, the media are uh, parasitic, that is to say that there is investigative reporting that takes place and that the other media use that information that the investigative reporting has uh, been able to research and to bring to the public's attention. And uh, Jeff, you were saying that this was the first election where the web really came into full flower. Uh, my question is, the Los Angeles Times, uh, I believe two years ago, had 1,200 on its editorial staff. Today it has 600. The Rocky Mountain News, a 150-year-old newspaper, recently shut shop. Uh, we're looking at really the death of newspapers, which means also a uh, mass uh, extermination of the trained professional investigative journalists who are responsible for much of this media coverage. And so my question to the panel is, what does this mean in four years uh, when we're talking about, if we have this conference again, and we're talking about a presidential election, if we have one-tenth the number of operating newspapers and investigative reporters? You yeah, raised the please. question that everybody is asking, and the, and the debate is now as to whether new forms will emerge or whether, in fact, there will be a dearth. Um, if you want to be encouraged, you can, I can point you to some websites that do real investigative reporting on the left, broadly speaking, talkingpointsmemo.com, the Josh Michael Marshall website, who actually broke the story of the Department of Justice firings. Um, pajamas media, or actually little green footballs, in 2004 broke the story that the Dan Rather report about George Bush was fatally flawed. Um, that said, whether you're going to have, what happens when we no longer have two reporters who are put on a story for four months to dredge up some account of wrongdoing, whether there'll be an alternative, whether there will be foundation-based reporting. Everybody in my business is in the, in the midst of a lot of serious debate because we don't know the answer to that. But it's a, a real big deal. And can I get um, one, the student to ask at least one question and then we can have the, the other panelists address that and then we'll have to wrap it up, I'm sorry. No, come on up here, come, come. There you go. Yes, uh, Mr. Greenfield. Uh, my understanding is that your argument that Obama's success in this last election was not a result so much of the media, but rather an achievement of a highly organized series of political tactics used by his administration to make the, quote, crucial shift in the campaign. Um, to clarify, does your argument undermine Obama's outstanding credentials to be the president of this country? No. <laughs> because, as I think I just mentioned, all the organizing in the world wouldn't work if you did the candidate himself and someday herself didn't have the chops. What, remember, Obama, Obama's credentials measured by traditional politics would have rendered him out of the running. You can't be a state legislature for nine years, a senator for a year and a half, suddenly decide you want to run for president and say, here I am. In this case, the credentials that Obama had were communications credentials, um, I think um, cerebral credentials, the ability to think through problems, um, and the ability to perfectly encapsulate the moment that, and the, and the, the, the if I can use this overuse, overuse phrase, the national mood, he fit it. So no, you, I mean, without the fundamental qualities 
I don't care who your ad guy is, and I don't care who your pollster is, and I don't care who's running your social networks. It's not going to work. That's so I think, I think no. And, and if any of the last panels want to make a last word that's short and, you know, kiss, keep it short and sweet, we can um, please say your last comment, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, we've been doing some analysis of uh, uh, micro patterns in, in uh, Obama's language. And one of the facts that we've uncovered is that his, um, his embellishment scores uh, are the lowest of any candidate since 1948. And that, what that is is um, adjectives and adverbs divided by verbs and nouns. Um, this is a guy who spoke in a staccato way, never laid uh, heavy uh, emphasis on, uh, on poetry or the rest. Um, it was a kind of a, a clear cut concrete, realistic style, and not something he could cognitively control, but that's, that language was perfectly suited to the times we're in, and I think to the uh, candidate himself. Okay. Well, thank you all for coming. Thank the panel for this fabulous discussion. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.